want to encourage you now. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We go back to this book, this wonderful book about the church and how the church is the body of Christ and what God has done for us and how we as a church are to function. In Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be reading from verse 25 to 32. 25 to 32, a section that speaks about how we are to live in our new life. Paul has penned this letter from prison and he has been describing who we are in Christ, that we are included in the body of Christ, that God has broken down the barrier and included us. He has elected us. He has ordained that we would be a part of His body. And He has given to each one of us spiritual gifts so that we can use them with the body of Christ. And He has given us new life. And this is how we are to live in that new life. Very practical section today. Ephesians 4 verse 25. It says this. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God, we pray that your spirit would fill us, that, Father, you would grant to us, O God, insight, understanding, knowing that these are your words, which you desire that we live by. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a new TV show called, that's out, and it's called The New You. I read a description of it. It reads this way. The New You is a groundbreaking daytime talk show that transforms the old you into the new you. It's, quote, The View, with a dream team of doctors and specialists working to help people overcome real-life obstacles. And for the first time on daytime television, guests will undergo a series of medical consultations and evaluations in front of a live studio audience in a state-of-the-art clinic. The physician-led panel's approach from traditional medicine to holistic medicine will dispel the common misperception of only one method of treating an ailment. The team strategy brings all doctors' areas of expertise together to obtain the best possible result. 
In addition, guests receive the makeover of a lifetime. In the new you, they have a boost room. Under the guidance of our cosmetic experts, the boost room offers a wide variety of clinically proven skincare treatments as well as hair, makeup, and wardrobe transformations that will be revealed at the end of every show, unquote. These days, of course, makeovers are very popular. They're very common. You see them on reality TV shows. Whether it's fashion or makeup artists to having your home torn down and replaced and rebuilt. It's the old you that they want to say have transformed into the new you. In recent weeks as well, it's well publicized in the news. Doctors have successfully completed a face transplant on a patient in Europe. And there is big talk about that. Just as big as talk about the $50 makeover that Susan Boyle had. What the world doesn't offer, though, is what God offers, and he talks about it here. It is a makeover of the soul, because a person can change habits, can change their hobbies, can get a new wardrobe, can have cosmetics and all sorts of surgery that one can have, but they cannot change what only God can change. And that is what is on the inside. That is the heart and the soul. See, one of the basic truths about Christianity is told to us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That is, that God has completely given to us a new nature. A person who is a Christian doesn't have a dual personality. They don't have the old self and the new self. They're not a schizophrenic. The old self is gone. It has been replaced by the new self. You don't add on the new to the old. It's not a renovation that God has done for you as a Christian. It is a replacement of a new heart, a new perspective on God, a new perspective on life, because you are a change and a new creature. And because of that, we have a different view of the world around us. And that is what we considered last time in the preceding verses, in verse 17 on to 24. In verse 17 to 24, it told us about what our old life was. That we were futile in our thinking, that we were darkened in our understanding, that we were people who had a hard heart, that we were callous. But now, in verse 24, it says we have a new life. In the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You are a new you. You are a new you. If you are a Christian, you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, you have received the gift of eternal life, you are a new person. Completely new. You say, well, well, how can it be? Because I have problems that I still had prior to becoming a Christian. I have all of these sins. I have all of these problems. We have old hangovers, you see. We have old habits, old sins that we continually work on, old things that we used to do. And sometimes we still have a habit of doing them. Simply because we have a new heart doesn't mean we become perfect by any means. It's just like if somebody were to move into a new home. 
If you were to have a new home, you were to move into a brand new home, do you realize that all of your old habits are going to be carried over? If you leave your clothes on the floor, you'll probably still do that. If you decide that, well, I'm not going to wash the windows, never have, and you probably will not do that either. There are old habits that you have that do not change or, or take time to change. And God tells us here, these are the characteristics that we need to change. Having a new heart, a new life, God changes us slowly. And these are the characteristics that are to characterize somebody who has a new life. So there are six of them. And today we'll, co- we'll cover three of them. The first being that we are to speak truthfully. We are to speak Truthfully, verse 25 says there, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbors, for we are all members of one body. Simply put, we're not to be liars. We're not to be people who bear false witness. Lying is a sin. In fact, it's a horrible sin that God hates. The book of Proverbs tells us that. Proverbs 12:22. The Lord detests lying lips, but He delights in men who are truthful. And time and time again, when you read through the Old Testament, the New Testament, God warns against false teachers and He expresses His hatred for lies. Because lying originates from whom? From Satan. Lying is detestable to God. Jesus said in John 8:44, "You are of the, your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father." He says of the Pharisees, "He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies." The person who lies is not imitating Christ. In other words, the person who lies, as Jesus condemned the Pharisees in that passage, is imitating Satan. And the Bible says the reason Satan lies is because that's his nature. That's what he is. He, he is a liar. And a Christian is not to emulate or copy what Satan does. A person who is a Christian is to emulate Christ. That's what Christian means. It means little Christ or follower of Christ. They're not to be a liar. If a person is a liar, well, it's quite obvious. It's questionable whether or not they have a new nature. Whether or not they have a new life. Luke 45, uh, chapter 6, verse 45 tells us, The good man, out of his good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. If the heart is filled with something that is evil, they will speak commensurate with what is in their heart. And so what one says is indicative of what is in the heart. Now our society is filled with people who don't know the Lord and our society is filled with people who lie. 
Some live a blatant lie for most of their lives. You can see in the newspaper there are people who run these financial schemes and bilk people out of money. They live lies. There has been tremendous amount of mortgage fraud or you always get these Nigerian emails. Well, there are many people like that. There are sports stars who lie about their drug use. There are advertisers who lie about their product. There are politicians who lie about their policies so they can get into office. There are students who lie and cheat on papers and they take tests in which they cheat. That is a form of lying. Taxpayers lie on their income tax returns. And there are business people who lie to get an extra buck. Healthcare providers who lie in order to protect themselves from being sued. Our world is filled with people who lie. And it is part and parcel that sometimes Christians adopt some of those things as well. Because they are so used to it perhaps from their old self. But some lie in many ways. Some will lie by exaggerating the truth. They'll exaggerate the truth. When people, for instance, are in a heated argument with someone else, sometimes spouses, they'll use things. You always do this or you never do that or whatever it might be. They exaggerate making false statements. And sometimes they exaggerate to bring fear into the hearts of people. Remember when the ten spies that were sent, there were twelve that sent into the promised land, two of them came back with a positive report, but ten of them had a negative report. And in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, they said this to the people. They said, there also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are a part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight, unquote. The Nephilim were a, 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 a group of giants, a class of giants spoken of in Genesis chapter 6. And they came back from the promised land and they said, there are giants in the land. They're big. Well, the Nephilim had drowned along with the rest of them. But they used exaggeration to bring, bring fear into people's lives. Christians can also do such things. Christians can flatter, speaking not what is true. They can betray a confidence or make excuses rather than owning up to what is true. Christians can answer the phone at dinner time when a telemarketer comes and says, Oh, they're not home when really they are. Christians can also say various things. And we're not to be like that. We're not to lie and say, oh, our child is this age when really they're not because it saves them money. All forms of lying. And it's important, very important, to teach children not to lie. A child's lies shouldn't be overlooked because a pattern of lying when they are young will lead to lies that are even bigger in their adulthood and their own souls will be at stake. See, sins and little with little or no consequences at a young age snowball into bigger and bigger sins later on. And it's been said lying is a gateway sin. It's a gateway sin because if a person can learn to lie at a young age and not be punished for it and they find out, oh, it's okay. It's okay if uh, I say a little bit of a bigger lie or the consequences might, might even be worse. And they begin to learn to lie and they open the door to greater sins that are even more worse. And so God condemns lying. In fact, some people get into such a habit of lying that they begin to believe their own lies. 
But the book of Proverbs tells us the consequences in 19 verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will perish. So, what does it say we're to do here in this text? tells us we're to speak the truth. We're to speak the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that we just say whatever's on our mind without regard to its effect or how we say it. Focus on the Family Has magazine. In June 2007, Paul Coughlin writes about an article and he writes an article and it uses a a pop culture type of uh, illustration about people who tell the truth and people who don't. And millions of people watch this popular TV show called American Idol. And when you listen to the three judges, there they are, and you all probably know them. They each express their opinions about a singer in a different way. Take Paula, for example. Paula is very gracious and, uh, you know, always tries to say something rather positive and affirming, but sometimes doesn't exactly tell what is true. But on the contrary, you have somebody who's like Simon, who will tell the truth right offhand, irregardless of how a person feels. And then after he's done, he gets a big boo from the crowd and he's looking around wondering, what did I say? And then there's Randy, who seems to be the one who's in between, giving good constructive criticism in a way that perhaps may be somewhat like more gracious than Simon. So here he says in this particular article, perhaps you ought to speak more like Randy because he will tell the truth in a way that is perhaps uh, somewhat affirming. In other words, scriptures tell us we're to speak the truth with a motivation of love. With a motivation of love and the way that we say it, thinking before we speak, not glossing over things and saying, you know what, I'm not going to say that because it might hurt their feelings. No, sometimes we need to speak what is true because silence is not good. And yet, speaking everything on our mind is not good either. And life, you realize, even life itself is dependent upon what's true. Your body, for example, is dependent upon what's true. Imagine if your mind started lying to you. Your mind started lying to you and sometimes people face that and when they become older, they think to themselves that, oh, I just know so-and-so stole something from me. You know, when maybe those who are of older age, they become paranoid that somebody's after them or, or whatever. If your mind started telling you, you know what, there's nothing wrong with walking across the freeway. That's the quickest route to go from here to there. And you've just got to be more efficient. And your mind started lying to you. Or imagine if your eyes started lying to you and then began to see things or not see things. There's no hole in the middle of my street. Oh, there's no, there's no car coming at me on this side of the road. And if your eyes started lying to you, it would mean death. Imagine that's how your body functions. Your body functions naturally on the basis of what is true. And if your body isn't telling you what is true, then you are in big trouble. Your body functions on that. And in the same way, the soul functions on the basis of truth as well. If the heart and the mind of a person says, you know what, I'm a decent person. I'm not that bad. I can earn my way into heaven. The time that they die, 
they'll have a horrible reality of what is true. And that's why we need the Word of God. Because it tells us what is true in a world full of lies. And the church is dependent upon what's true as well. The church is dependent upon what is true. The Bible tells us the reason for telling truth. For we are all members, it says, of one body. So you and I are to be truthful with each other. We speak the truth in love. We speak the truth sensitively. We speak the truth even when it may be difficult. We speak the truth in a world that is somewhat postmodern, where people say, well, it's kind of a relative truth, that's good for you, that's not good for me, etc. No, we're to speak what is true, because the scriptures speak very clearly on many things. To stand for what is true, to speak what is true, and to live by what is true. And we are to speak what is true, and not deceive, not to lie, not to bear false witness. Secondly, the second characteristic... The second characteristic of a new life, a new you, is we are to handle righteous anger. Handle righteous anger, verse 26 and 27. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now here's an instruction on how we're to handle anger. Some people have looked at this verse and taking it perhaps out of context, oblivious to the other passages that also speak of anger in the book of Ephesians or in the book of Colossians. This is what they say. They say, well, you can be angry as long as you don't sin. Anger is a neutral emotion. Anger is fine in any and all circumstances as long as you don't sin. They'll say anger doesn't mean anything. It's a, it's a feeling and it's what you do with that that counts. But the Bible doesn't portray anger as a completely neutral emotion. In fact, when you look a few verses down at verse 31, verse 31, it tells us, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. In other words, it's not a list of some neutral and some sinful emotions. This is a list of sins. Just like in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, it has another listing of sins. But you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. In other words, these are things that are characteristic of the old self. They are sins we are not to live by. We're to put away. So, what kind of anger then is good and what kind of anger is not good? It's very obvious that there is anger that is sinful and anger that is not sinful. There are three words that speak of anger in the New Testament at least. The word that is used to speak of some anger is the type of blowing up, of popping your top, of losing your cool. That's not this word that is used here in Ephesians. It's not the type of anger that is the inward resentment anger either. But this word for anger is that which is of a deep-seated, determined conviction. A deep-seated conviction that a person has. And the determining question is this. Is, is this something that angers God? Is what I'm angry about what God would also be angry about? If so, I should be angry. I should be angry. I should not sin. 
Is it a righteous anger? We ask ourselves, why am I angry? Is it because God is offended? Is it because there is sin? Is it because of injustice? Is it because this is not a right thing? Or am I angry? Because of a selfish reason like uh, somebody didn't respect me. Somebody didn't treat me right. I didn't get that raise. I didn't get that job. I didn't get that grade. I didn't get what I wanted. Somebody doesn't respect me or wasn't fair to me. And in the back of our minds, we evaluate and we say, I am better than this. I deserve more. And we become angry. Somebody has popped my bubble. They have, they have squashed and stepped on my ego. And we become angry. And that is a sinful anger. Is it righteous anger or an unrighteous anger? That is the question. And here I'm very convinced that this is a righteous anger. To be angry at the things that God would be angry at. Suffice it to say, most of the time when we're angry, when someone pulls in front of us in the freeway, or when someone decides they're going to drive in front of us, when we are stepping into the crosswalk, it's because, well, we feel we have rights. We've been offended. We've been hurt, mistreated. We're angry, not because our, 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 our heart says, you know what, God hates that when people do that. Many times our thought is because of our pride. I deserve to be treated better. How could they say that to me? I deserve much better. When we look at Jesus, we look at Jesus and we say, well, Jesus was angry. The question is, what was Jesus angry about? When Jesus walked into the temple and he saw that there were the money changers and those who were buying and selling things and the money changers, they, they, would, they, would, they would exchange money, you see, because people would bring their offering into the temple of God and they'd say, here's, here's my offering. And they'd look at the coins. No, those are Greek coins. They have the, they have the picture of Caesar on there. That is idolatry. You need, you need Jewish coins. Here, let's exchange them. And they would rip them off. And then there were people who were selling and buying various items, sacrificial animals that were, quote-unquote, certified by the religious leaders. And again, they would rip them off. And Jesus clears all of them out. And he says, you've turned, you've turned the temple of God or the house of God into a den of robbers when it should be, what, a house of prayer. Again, he was angry in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. When he asked the Pharisees, he asked the Pharisees, is it right? Is it right that a man was crippled would be healed? Man would be healed on the Sabbath? And they said nothing. In Mark chapter 3 verse 5 it says, After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. When Jesus, though, when he was attacked personally, when he was spat on, when he had a crown of thorns on his head and he was nailed to the cross, the Bible tells us of a wholly different attitude. It's a personal offense. Luke 23:34 it says, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Many times it is because of a personal offense we become angry because we somehow feel as if we have better rights. And yet if we remember the truth of the matter is, you know what, I am undeserving of anything. 
I'm undeserving to live. But by the grace of God, I can get up the next day and have a job and go to work or whatever it might be. By the grace of God, I have food on my table. And if God sends somebody else to take that food away from me, to take that job away from me, to take that grade away from me, I didn't deserve it in the first place because it is all by the grace of God. The anger that is spoken of here is the un of the righteous anger. And there are two, perhaps, categories of people that we're not to be like. Of course, as I mentioned before, there's, a, there's those that have a temper, those that, have a, that blow their top, they're easily frustrated, they lose their cool. The Scriptures tell us what we're to do with those individuals. Proverbs 22, 24 and 25 Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. In other words, you hang around with somebody who has a temper, you hang around with somebody who blows their top, you know what, you're going to learn to be like them. You realize many times we learn to react and respond, especially children learn to react and respond to various problems in life by watching how their parents handled it. Maybe one of the parents withdrew from conflict. And so you'll see that they'll withdraw later on as well. They won't say any. Others will be a fighter. They'll fight and they'll, they'll talk back or whatever it might be because they've watched others. And those who have tempers, those who have a hot head will learn to, will communicate that and others will learn. That's how you respond to problems. Then there's the opposite end of the spectrum that we're never to be like as well. Those who are quote unquote laid back. Psychology tells us being laid back is not anything wrong. That's a personality. Nothing phases them. They're never angry. Nothing rattles their cage. They can watch the media, read the newspaper. No seeming reaction whatsoever. They can view sin, see sin, and it does not phase them what not. That's not how we're to be either. They may even be, quote unquote, nice people. But it doesn't equate to godliness. It doesn't equate to Jesus being laid back. Jesus wasn't this laid back. Oh, whatever happens is fine. You Pharisees are just, oh, do your deal and I do my deal, etc. He doesn't sit there and laugh at sin, never becoming... No, God has anger. Christ has anger. And there are things that offend God. Sin and unrighteousness, things that God hates, we are to hate as well. We're not to be, oh, I'm just, I'm just, that's my personality. That's not godliness. That's not Christ-likeness when nothing offends. Nothing rattles our cage because it should. In fact, it's commanded, be angry, yet do not sin. So where there's a righteous anger, things that God is angry at, we are to be angry as well. Things that offend God, things that hurt God are to hurt our heart as well. And when it doesn't, those are things that we're to be rid of. We're not to be angry for many things that offend us necessarily that don't offend God. And it could be the same thing. It could be the same event that happens and we can be angry or not angry depending upon our motive and our perspective of that. 
Somebody may offend us and we're not angry because they offended us. We're angry because they have offended God. Yes, it may hurt me, but they have also offended God and God does not like what they have done or said or whatever it might be. Putting aside our own personal selves. They are not to be the particular way. And when we are, the scriptures tell us, don't be angry over the next day. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because it's easy, you see, when anger comes into one's life to allow it to stew. And it begins very incipiently. It begins to take root in the heart and can easily turn into bitterness or resentment and the seeds of anger germinate into animosity or germinate into hostility. And I've watched people who have allowed things like that go on for months or years and they have not been able to let go of some sort of anger or resentment and it consumes their life and it dominates the thoughts and there is a reaction. Sometimes I've seen people when certain things are mentioned or whatnot, you can watch their face. It immediately immediately changes because there is something there. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so we are to be people who speak truthfully or handle righteous anger and thirdly, labor and share. Labor and share. Verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. The person who has a changed life is not to be a thief. They're not to steal. Stealing is, is common in our society. And some means of stealing are very blatant. Some are more casual. Some are very blatant. I remember a, about a month ago, I was sitting at the office. I got, got there early and there I watched as all of these cars suddenly pull up and all of these guys come out and they all have bulletproof vests on. And there they were, the Bellevue Police, the FBI, the, 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 the U.S. Postal Agents, Federal Agents, and, rap, and they're rapping on this door right next to my office and they're looking through the window at me and I'm like, hi, you know, I'm just a guy, you know, and I'm like over this office over here and they come into the office and they do you know when so and so comes in and they're all surrounding this thing and I'm thinking they're going to bust that door down and yes they were going to bust that door down do you know where the manager I don't know the manager I'm just a, I'm just a Joe <laughs> some sort of white collar crime or mail fraud stealing is often not that blatant in our society, shopping, shoplifting is a major problem. In fact, a, a large percentage, billions of dollars, sometimes I've read retailers will, 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 will slice out a third of the profits or something like that simply to accommodate for the amount of theft that occurs from employees. There are billions of dollars through false Medicare billings, overcharging the military we hear about, false and underreporting the IRS, embezzlement, all of that is theft. Everything from grand larceny is theft all the way to taking money off your mother's dresser without asking, not paying employees a fair wage, backing out of a debt you owe, stealing time at work. How about borrowing something from somebody and conveniently Forgetting that you have to return that doesn't belong to you. Taking the towels from the hotels. 
Taking what doesn't belong to you. Instead, the answer that Jesus gives here, that God gives, is what? Work. Work. The Bible says not just any old busybody work. People are to do something, and the scriptures say, useful. Some people think that their work is useful when really it is not. It says stop stealing and instead work. And do you realize that God doesn't simply supply what you need? God doesn't simply supply what you need. You know, many people are, are kind of afraid. They're afraid to trust God because if they trusted God, God would only give them what they need. They know God says that in the Bible. But they think of needs, well, food, shelter, clothing. And if I really trusted God and I went off to the mission field or whatever it might be, that's all I'm going to have. Scriptures doesn't, don't say that. In fact, God wants you to work and He's going to give you, generally, more than you need. He's going to give you more than you need. In fact, He wants you to have more than you need. He wants you to have more than you need. Why? Not for yourself. Not so that you can hoard it. Not so that you can uh, stock it up and say, you know what, I'm secure. I'm financially secure now. It's not why. It says, so that you can share with others in need. Word of work. So that we can have more than we need. So that we can share with those who do have needs. It's not for us. It's so that we can share. And God has given to the majority of people more than they need. The problem with our self-centered culture is that we try to get more so we can spend more on us. And when we gain more, we buy more, and we collect more, and we stock up more. It's all for us. But the blessing of working is that we can have more so we can share with those in need. And so we're to speak what is true and not lie. We're to handle righteous anger that day, and we're to work and not steal and be honest. There's an account in summary that I read, reprinted from the Catalyst Group Design, Volume 2 in 2006. There's a man who had a friend and a mentor. His mentor's name was John McMurray. John McMurray's first rule was always to tell the truth. And so he writes about this encounter that he had with his good friend, And he says, John and I were sitting around the family room one night when he asked about my new cell phone. I got it free, I told him. How'd you get it free? He asked. Well, my other one broke, so I took it in to see if they could replace it. They had this new computer system at the store. And they didn't have their records. They didn't know whether mine was still under warranty. It wasn't. I told them I didn't know. It was about right around a year anyways and just a little white lie and you know. Anyway, the phone was so messed up they replaced it with one that was free. So I got a free phone. John asked, did you ever see that movie? The Family Man with Nicolas Cage. There's a scene where Nicolas Cage walks into a store to get a cup of coffee and Don Shadell plays the guy working at the counter. There's this girl in line before... Nicholas Cage, and she's buying something for 99 cents. And she hands Shadell a dollar. And Shadell takes out nine dollars out of the till and counts it out, giving her way too much change. She sees that he is handing her way too much money, yet she picks it up and puts it in her pocket without saying a word. And as she's walking out the door, Shadell stops her and tries to give her another chance. He says, Is there anything else you need? She shakes her head and 
walks out. I see what you're getting at, John, I say. Let me finish, he says. So Chadelle looks at Nicolas Cage and he says, did you see that? She was willing to sell her character for nine dollars. Nine dollars. After a little while, I spoke up. Do you think that's what I'm doing with this phone? you think I'm selling my character? To be honest, I said with a smirk, I do, John said. The Bible talks about having a calloused heart. That's when sin, after a period of time, has so deceived us. We, are no longer, we no longer care whether our thoughts or our actions are right or wrong. Our hearts go there easily and often over what looks like little things, little white lies. All I'm saying as your friend is, watch out for this kind of thing, unquote. I went back to the store the next day. cost me more than $9, but I got my character back. So the question for us is, what does the new you look like? If you're a Christian, what does the new you look like? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see what you see on the outside? Oh, I look like this, or I'm, my hair looks like that, or I've got the right makeup or clothes on. What does the new you look like? Or is the focus on the new you what is on the inside? What is on the inside? And have you sold out your character for $9 or even less? Have you sold out who you are? Because you know what? You've got a price tag on your head. You've got a price tag on your head. And whatever that price is, I'll tell you, Satan is willing to buy you out. To say to you, this is what I've got to offer. And for you to capitulate and cave in and say, you know what? I'll buy it for that price. I'll sell who I am. I'll sell myself out. Because you know what? The consequences of not having are greater. The consequences of being truthful are greater. The consequences aren't worth my time or whatever. And you sell yourself out and not telling what is true or not taking, taking what is not yours. And so we, we sell ourselves out because there is a price on your head. But if you know before God and make that determination, I will not be sold. I will not be sold because my soul belongs to God. Then you can take a stand for what is true. And live with integrity, knowing that, you know what, I am right with God. Because my soul belongs to Him. And we speak what is true, and we work for what we have, and we also live a life that handles our character righteously, angry at the things God is angry at, and loving the things that God loves. And we will be more like Him who redeemed us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray, O oh God, that we might be truthful. Truthful because you have called us as children, children of you. And Father, perhaps there are some here who, there is something in their life, O oh God. They know it, and you know it. That they're not living, Father, with integrity. And I pray, Father, maybe it is something that they owe someone else. Maybe it is something that they have told someone else that is not true. 
Maybe, Father, it is a long-term anger that is based upon a personal offense. I pray, O God, whatever it may be, refine us with your fire and may we make it right for you that we might burn in our hearts with a passion for your glory, that we might shine like stars in a bright day. May we be, O God, children of light. In Jesus' name, amen.